Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Now, even in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and even in the middle or the end, rather, of a week in which everything feels like it might be coming apart, immigration remains crucially important. Immigration is where the values of our nation play out for newcomers. Restrictions on land and air travel, closures of the U.S. land borders with Mexico and Canada, a 60-day temporary halt on the issuance of certain green cards are all causing fear and anxiety for immigrants and asylum seekers, many of whom remain at Immigrations and Customs Enforcement detention centers where they face an increased risk of exposure to COVID. Today we'll hear from an advocate who works directly with those seeking asylum at ports of entry on what life is like at the U.S.-Mexico border, both before and after and during this pandemic. We'll also talk about how immigration policy and practice has shifted in recent decades. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, you can visit us at cityclub.org slash thank you, and you can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. Now our speaker, Crystal Massey, is the volunteer coordinator for the Immigration Justice Campaign at the American Immigration Council. That's an organization focused on increasing access to legal counsel for immigrants held in detention centers in the United States. She's been working at the border of Mexico and New Mexico since 2011, and before that she lived in Shaker Heights, Ohio. She did her graduate work in human rights and democracy at the Facultad Latinoamericana de Ciencias Sociales in Mexico City. Now, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. Crystal Massey, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. It is great to have you with us. Thank you. I want to ask, it's, it's really good to have you from uh, even from a distance. Um, and you had been on our calendar, actually. We had planned on hosting you here in Cleveland yes. um, prior to the pandemic. And with the pandemic, we're delighted that you're able to join us today, even, even if immigration is far from the minds of a lot of people, given the news this week. But I want to ask you, nevertheless, today there will be people who seek a asylum at a port of entry yes. in El Paso, perhaps, close to where you live. Yes. What are they likely to encounter when they do so? So um, every port of entry along the border is a little bit different. When people are coming from Ciudad Juarez to El Paso, there are bridges because it goes over a, a small river. And uh, if people were to come to that bridge today and ask for asylum, it's very likely that the Mexican authorities would not even allow them to set foot on the bridge. They would be checking IDs, looking for people who um, uh, they would be uh, targeting to see if they were from another country and not even allow them to set foot on the bridge. If a person made it onto the bridge, 
there's another point halfway across, right where the flags are from the United States and Mexico, where there would be Border Patrol officers who would stop everyone and ask for identification. And anyone who was asking for asylum would be turned back at this point. Why is it so important in that scenario that they don't actually set foot on American soil? Well, the, the rules are that if somebody sets foot on American soil, then they have a right to be processed and they have a right to ask for asylum. And that's our national laws and something that we have worked hard to respect going all the way back to 1948 uh, when this uh, when a focus on asylum see uh, seekers and refugees became an important focus in our country. Uh, so right now, uh, going back over a year now, the Border Patrol has been blocking people halfway to make sure they cannot set foot on American soil. And just to remind us, the 1948, uh, that became important because the United States had such a poor record in accepting legitimate asylum seekers in during who were leaving, trying to flee Nazi Germany and Eastern That's Europe. That's correct. Yes. Um, and so the impact of that for the last year has got to be huge. I mean, what's happened to everybody who has not been allowed to set foot on American soil? So it depends on which countries they're coming from. Um, people have been put on waiting lists and people who are not from Mexico are put on a waiting list where they can then go and get paperwork done so that they are put into what is called the migrant protection protocols. There are over 60,000 people who have been put into migrant protection protocols um, going back uh, to the beginning at the beginning of last year. Uh, those people are currently waiting for the most part in northern Mexico in very dangerous situations. Um, and uh, one of the links that I had put for people who are interested in learning more about MPP is to uh, a, a program uh, that focuses on that, that even won a Pulitzer, one of the first radio programs to win a Pulitzer Prize, because it, it is very complex and people are being kidnapped, people are being attacked. Um, and now that people have no chance to come in uh, with the pandemic and, and new restrictions, people who have been waiting and waiting a long time for their court date are now being told that their court date is on an indefinite hold. And so that has had a huge impact as well. So these, uh, these asylum seekers, largely these 60,000 people who are forced to remain in Mexico, the migrant, the, the migrant yes. protocol you, re you referenced is also referred to as remain in Mexico, correct? Yes, correct. Um, they are largely from Central and Southern America, South America, or where are they? Yes, the, the majority would be coming from the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Mm -hmm. And we have seen uh, an influx in people fleeing those countries for very legitimate reasons going back to approximately 2014, uh, when we had large numbers of, of people seeking asylum in the United States. And uh, there are also people coming from Haiti, coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Vietnam. There are people coming from all over the world to seek asylum and often coming through that southern border, Venezuela as well. And the authorities in Juarez and, and other cities uh, adjacent to, to the border, how are they handling this? It varies widely um, from city to city along the Mexican border. There's no set plan and there are no refugee camps and so there's no protection for people it's absolutely makeshift um, there there are some cities that have one or maybe two uh, shelters that are available for people who are in mpp but it doesn't come close to covering the numbers of people that are being kept in MPP. Uh, the civil society in Northern Mexico has had an incredible response. For example, in Juarez, 
many people in who are Mexican who live in Juarez have been stepping up to try to offer a humanitarian response to people who are stuck there and in danger at this time. Many churches have opened their doors and many churches have been put at risk. Um, many pastors have been put at risk uh, because cartels don't necessarily want them to be offering refuge to people um, from whom they can make money in a variety of ways. And then there are the thousands of Mexicans that have asked for asylum who are also forced to wait and are not being allowed to, to process at, at this time. And even before the pandemic, we're not being allowed to process. And there have been many tent cities that have formed along the northern border of Mexico, right across from the ports of entry into the United States. If you're just joining the City Club Friday Forum, we're speaking today with Crystal Massey. She's the volunteer coordinator for the Immigration Justice Campaign at the American Immigration Council. As a volunteer coordinator there, she connects asylum seekers with people able to provide legal representation and legal support to them as they per- as they as they work their case or try to get their case seen through the courts. Uh, if you have a question, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. I'm Dan Malthrop. Crystal, I want to ask you, um, you mentioned 60,000 people awaiting uh, in Mexico through this um, migrant protection protocol. Um, the Additionally, you said that those who had court dates are finding that their court dates are being postponed indefinitely, uh, likely due to COVID. Um, is anybody getting their case processed? Um, right now, there are still occasionally people who, because of health issues or because they had a, a court recently, will be in immigration detention. So, for example, um, there are cases of people who had been in the Migrant Protection Protocols program in um, Mexico before they closed the border completely and, and started refusing to accept anyone in uh, due to COVID, um, they might have, have come in for a court. And then if somebody expresses a fear of returning to Mexico, they're given a non-refoulement interview. And those interviews uh, have been very problematic. Uh, many people have been returned even when they have shown clear and present danger in Mexico. But there are occasionally people making it through because they are found by the officer who gives that interview to have clear um, uh, to clearly be in danger if they return to Mexico. And so sometimes they are then detained in a detention center in the United States. And there are some people who are still in asylum proceedings. There are at least 6,000 people who are detained right now who have already passed a credible fear interview who are in the asylum process who are in detention centers around the country. And there is no need for them to be detained. There's no requirement for them to be detained. That's at the discretion of ICE. How did we get here? What would this process have looked like 30 years ago? Oh, 30 years ago, I am not absolutely certain, but I can share with you a little bit of numbers with detention. Hmm. So in 1994, there were only 6,785 people on average a day in immigration detention around this country. By 1999, just five years later, that had gone up and almost tripled to 17,772 people on average a day. Now, we, in 2019, we were looking at almost 55,000 people who um, were slated to be detained at any given time. At the beginning of this pandemic, there were 38,000 people who were detained and we're down to approximately 32,000 people who are still detained. But we're still very concerned about those numbers. Just a decade, not even a decade ago, this process looked something like this. If a family was seeking asylum and people had, um, fear in their country of origin and were asking for asylum in the United States. 
they could go to a port of entry and they could ask right at that port of entry for asylum. There were no officers at the middle of the bridge. They were able to walk across and go to the lines where people come in and they were able to say, I am scared I will die if I'm sent back to my country of origin. And then often and officers would try to scare them away, um, would tell them they were gonna be detained, tell them they were gonna be separated from their children, though family separation um, other than separating adult men away from the rest of the family was not common at that time. Um, but but it would it would be a process and ICE would look at the documents they had and they would do a background check. And if people had family members in the United States that they were going to be with, or very close friends or church group in the United States that was ready to receive them, then if they showed up as, as being people who had a legit, legitimate concern and that uh, ICE did not have any concerns about them being uh, a threat to national security, then they would be processed through, usually within about 30 hours, and their family would pay for a bus ticket and they would go to live with their family until it was time for their court date. And then they would have the ability to prepare for their court, to prepare their case from outside of detention with access to the internet, with access to telephones, um, and with their family so that they wouldn't have to be concerned. Uh, I, I do think it's important for people to know that going back for decades, the type of family separation where a grandmother arrives with a grandchild um, or an adoptive parent arrives with a child that they adopted or um, an aunt arrives with a niece or nephew, um, even in cases where a, a parent, a biological parent was murdered and they have evidence of this, the standard practice has been to separate those children from their loved ones at that time. Um, and it's a whole process to get them back together. Uh, the new thing in 2018 was separating children from their biological parents. And we're concerned again right now because at the largest of the family detention centers um, in Dilly, Texas and Carnes, Texas, and then also at Berks in Pennsylvania, uh, there have been uh, verified reports of parents being told that if they want their children released from a detention center, where they're under the care of private prison company guards right now in the middle of a pandemic, the only way to do that is to sign away their parental rights and they're be being given what is called a binary choice. And that is something that a judge has found to be unacceptable. And the judge has been asking why these children are not being released along with their parents. And the attorneys who are working on these cases are asking the same thing. Who benefits from this change in policy? Well, the private prison companies definitely benefit from this change in policy. When you go from less than 7,000 people being detained in 1994 to almost 50,000, over 50,000 people being slated and having beds available for them in uh, predominantly private prison companies around the country uh, this year, uh, Core Civic, uh, which used to be CCA, and Geo Group are the two largest of the private prison companies who benefit from this. Does the American public benefit at all? I mean, I think that the... I, I would argue that the American public does not. And I would base that uh, in a big part on my experiences. I uh, lived and worked in Dilly, Texas at the largest of the family detention centers for a full year. And one of the things that most impacted me there is that it's a town of uh, just a little over 3,000 people. Uh, traditionally, the economy there is based on watermelon and cantaloupe growth. Uh, the majority of the town are people who come from immigrant backgrounds themselves. And you have a federal prison that is there. And then you have this family detention center that was put in in 2015 on a $1 billion no-bid contract 
There's no public transportation that gets to that town. And it's a full hour and 15 minutes from San Antonio and an hour and a half from Laredo, which are the closest airports you could fly into. The people in the town, most of them were not even given work at the facility unless it was part of the janitorial staff. And most of the guards are coming in from cities close by and they even have buses that they bring them in on. So it didn't even increase or benefit that town economically. It has hurt the water supply in that town and many people in that town have been complaining about that for years because there were no additional taxes on that that company and they didn't have to help increase the infrastructure even though when you have beds for 2,400 women and children and you have ICE officers and you have guards and you have pseudo teachers and you have medical staff that are all coming into this facility, then you, not to mention the people who are doing the cooking, that that number of people often outnumbers the number of people living in the town on any given day, but with no increases to their infrastructure, et cetera. And most of the guards who worked there that you would get to know were people who would tell you, if I had any other job I could take that would offer me a decent salary and most importantly, medical benefits, I would take it in a heartbeat because this kills my soul. And so that that is something that I don't think this type of work of locking people up and putting people in the position of guarding uh, people who committed no crime, I think that that, hurts us as a country. And especially right now during COVID-19, you have guards going into detention centers with active outbreaks and then going back home and going to their communities, uh, cleaning staff, people working in the kitchens, and all of those people are being put at risk for no reason. There is this argument that uh, that is made by people who would like to see tougher immigration policies, that, are, that previous immigration policies were um, too liberal, too too easy for people to gain asylum, for people to migrate to the United States, and that they those people who migrate would somehow be taking jobs that uh, that American citizens ought to have. Um, how how do you see that? How does the American yes. Immigration Council see that? I think that there's a lot of misinformation. I, I know that there's a lot of misinformation about the asylum process. There is a pervasive uh, belief that um, there are many loopholes and that most people don't show up for court. Both of those things are patently untrue and easy to show just from the government's own numbers. Um, that groups from, from our group, the American Immigration Council, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit, to the Cato Institute, which is a very conservative libertarian organization, have all found consistently <laughs> that the 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 barriers to asylum are astronomical. You can look at EOIR.gov. I would encourage people to go there and look at the government's own numbers on asylum and the grant rates for asylum, the numbers of people who've been granted asylum, as opposed to the number of people who've been denied asylum. They have the numbers going back decades, and it has always been incre an incredibly small number of people. And I think that, that many people don't understand. People think, oh, if somebody's scared, if somebody um, uh, is worried about going back to their country of origin, they're going to be allowed in to be in asylum proceedings. But that's not the way it works. Even if somebody goes before an asylum officer for a credible fear interview, and that asylum officer ends that interview fully believing that this person could be sent back to their country of origin and murdered or tortured, or that their children could be murdered or tortured. 
The U.S. government still regularly sends people back in those situations and denies credible fear interviews because asylum is very, very small and very particular. People have to be able to show that they qualify for one of five protected grounds. They have to be able to show that they were persecuted in the past and the and or that they are more than likely to be persecuted in the future because of their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. So I'm 51 and I, when I was growing up in the 80s, we would often hear about people fleeing the Eastern Bloc of Europe, fleeing the Soviet Union. And, and many of us from my generation associated political asylum with people fleeing um, those types of restrictive governments and coming to the United States. There are other things included as well. For example, right now, if a person is fleeing a country where it is illegal to be gay, and there are countries where it is illegal to be gay, um, and your police will not protect you if you're being beaten or harassed, and you go to the police, the police will lock you up because you are admitting that you are gay and that's why it's happening to you. Um, that's just one example of many. That's, that's one example of people who might fit into that area of a particular social group. Um, the, and then we've seen all of those people who are Roma people, gypsies coming from Eastern Europe still, who because of their nationality or people from specific indigenous groups, there is still slavery happening in various parts of the world. Um, there are, are heartbreaking stories, and there are people who are arriving who qualify for asylum or even passing those credible fear interviews, which are so stringent and difficult to pass. And then we're still holding them in detention right now, even in the middle of a pandemic, putting the workers there at risk and putting them at risk. We're speaking with Crystal Massey of the American Immigration Council about the state of the border and uh, in the state of asylum seeking as well as immigration overall. Crystal is a former Clevelander, actually, um, now living in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, Crystal Massey, yes. we've been sp speaking for the last 20 minutes really about asylum seekers, but there are other immigrants, others who seek to yes. live and work in the United States. Undocumented immigrants um, cause a lot of consternation for a lot of people. Um, hearing you talk about it, it seems as though the frustration that our nation or that our nation's lawmakers and uh, and and elected leaders have around undocumented immigration is being taken out. Their frustration is being taken out on asylum seekers. Is that an accurate way to view this? I think that that um, may be part of it. I think that uh, there have definitely been some members of the current administration who have expressed a desire to end the asylum process because they are not in agreement with it. Um, but I, I think that, um, I think that there are a lot of questions. You, you mentioned American values and the American values that we all share. And one of the things that we see consistently, especially talking about immigration, is that there are values that we all share that are important to think about. Our love of family and the sacrifices we're willing to make for our families. Um, the, the attitude that we should do no harm, that we should be compassionate towards others, our community values, our families and looking out for our fa families. In the state of Ohio, there are at least 50,000 U.S. citizens who have at least one family member who is undocumented. So th there's, there's also a lot of misinformation about how easy it is to get in line and get paperwork done. A lot of people are under the misperception that by getting married or having U.S. citizen children, you're going to automatically qualify to stay here. But we, we um, over the past decade, have 
permanently separated millions of families by sending a loved one back to a country of origin after they were prohibited from ever filing any paperwork or were unable to, to make it through different aspects of the system, they're incredibly difficult. Even explaining certain aspects of the, the system to people with doctoral degrees can be incredibly difficult. <laughs> so for somebody who speaks English as a second language and doesn't have access to as many resources, it can be impossible. Um, so I think that that can be part of it. There are other people being detained as well. And I think that whether they're undocumented or people who are legal permanent residents, people who came to this country as students back in the 70s. And um, so one example, when I first started working at the American Immigration Council and working as the volunteer coordinator, one of the first conversations I had to have with people who were taking on cases in Aurora, Colorado, uh, was the fact that a man had died there. He was 64 years old. He was a legal permanent resident. He um, was a scientist. He, he was originally from Iran. Um, he'd fallen in love with a person in the United States, gotten married, stayed here, had U.S. citizen children. Um, and like many people, he made a mistake a full 12 years before he was picked up. And it was a drug possession charge. And it had happened 12 years before. He thought it was over and done with. But ICE was low on their quota numbers, apparently. That's one of the things that many nonprofits who work with immigration are very concerned about is that there's, there seems to be quotas, quotas to keep immigration beds filled and quotas for deportation. And that goes back over a decade. Um, and that, that is something that, that is of great concern to, to those of us working on these issues. Um, and so this gentleman um, in December of 2017, uh, just two weeks after being put into ICE detention, a legal permanent resident with his whole family and over a, a drug possession charge that had happened 12 years previously. So how many of our presidents in the past two decades would have fit into that category of somebody who had had a drug possession at some point in time. That, that's part of our reality and we're not even gonna get into Congress. So um, the levels of hypocrisy that we would divide a family and put a man at risk. And, and these are some of the, the issues we've had at detention centers is these private run prison companies that are sucking our tax dollars are also not protecting the people they're detaining. And there have been serious issues with, with a lack of adequate medical care. We're speaking with Crystal Massey. Including uh, many unnecessary deaths. We're speaking with Crystal Massey of the American Immigration Council. Uh, if you have a question, we're about to turn to the audience Q&A. You can text your question to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. I'm Dan Malthrop. Crystal, um, how, what has the impact been the, of COVID-19? on this community, these communities, and these and those who are in detention? I would strongly recommend, there's a new report that just came out from the American Immigration Council yesterday called The Impact of COVID-19 on Non-Citizens and Across the U.S. Immigration System. And so remember that non-citizens includes people here legally. Uh, in, in many cities, a quarter of the health workers, people who are on the front lines working on COVID-19 issues, are immigrants themselves. Um, there have been incredibly compelling stories of, of doctors whose specialty is, is working with different lung uh, diseases, and they want to be on the front lines, but the Congress has been absolutely inflexible in just shifting their visas enough to let their hospitals allow them to go to New Jersey instead of where they're currently located to help and on the front lines in some of the places where there's a huge need. Um, so that that is a report that I would highly recommend to people. It talks about a wide variety of impacts that our response, our current response to COVID-19 has had 
um, on immigrants, including many who are on the front lines. And, and that's just the medical community. Uh, there are so many people that are now considered essential workers who are making sure that our, um, our food chain does not break down, that, that there's still people getting food in the fields, there are still people working at meat processing plants, etc. And many of these people are immigrants as well. And what about those on the other side of the border? the 60,000 who are remaining in Mexico right uh, now? It is, it is um, worse every day. There are, the, the response of the, the shelters along the border has been incredible. Uh, finding ways to isolate those who have tested positive for, for COVID-19, um, et cetera. I'm always so impressed with the incredible response from civil society since the governments are not stepping up and are putting everyone in very unreasonable situations. My community as well here in, in Southern New Mexico, El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, this whole region has, has really stepped up in its response to refugees going back to 2014 in a very important way. Uh, but one of the things that we are requesting as an organization and that is mentioned in that report um, that, that I told you about is that not only should, do we want people who who are being detained in a discretionary matter and who've never committed a crime to be released from detention today. ICE could do it today um, to be released. Um, we also are really asking um, that there be a screening process so that people who are in this Migrant Protection Protocols program have the promise that was made to them respected that they look for ways to get people in. There are many shelters ready to go on offering two-week housing for people so that they can be quarantined to make sure that people can be processed through and not be kept in an incredibly dangerous situation as cartel violence goes back up again um, at, at this critical time. As I said, we're talking with Crystal Massey. She's a volunteer coordinator for the Immigration Justice Campaign at the American Immigration Council. This is the City Club Friday Forum. And if you have a question for Crystal Massey, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. I want to acknowledge that this conversation about immigration may not fit the news of the week, but immigration has not stopped being uh, every bit as important, particularly for those who are trying to immigrate or who are uh, in the midst of that process. Again, if you have a question, please text it to 330-541-5794. And Crystal, the uh, city of Youngstown, or the Mahoning Valley generally, um, used to have an ICE detention center, but no longer does. Uh, that is a, a, a moment when um, Ohio was playing a role in all of this. What is the What happened there? Um. There is no clear uh, statement that's been made about why that detention center was closed down, but there um, are many guesses that people have. Uh, there were some consistent issues with outbreaks of mumps, of measles, uh, serious issues with people being exposed because of the way that the barracks are set up to diseases, um, uh, that it would have been very uh, easily avoidable by just letting them go with their family members. To, uh, to avoid that situation. There was a lot of pushback uh, a little over a year ago, I believe, was when there were some raids in Ohio of workers, long-term workers with U.S. citizen family and uh, workers were picked up and many were sent to Youngstown. And so I know that there was some pushback in the community with people looking at their community values and the family values that they have and saying, I don't want this person who's been my neighbor and a great neighbor for all these years to, to not have a, ch a fair shot at, at getting paperwork taken care of to be able to stay here. Um, there was also a, a death there 
um, that we also believe to be a preventable death um, right before the, the facility was shut down. Uh, unfortunately, they are still uh, detaining people who uh, qualify for asylum, but now at jails around the, the state. Understood. This question from one of our listeners, our concerns are even greater under the present administration, and we feel like we're not making a difference, but ask what you suggest as the most important action we can be taking today. When we frequently contact local and federal leaders, we feel it falls on deaf ears. It's easy to give up, as I'm sure you know. So how can we best support the work that you are engaged in? Um, I... I had the opportunity. So I w- once, when I lived in Shaker in, in the Cleveland area, I was an elementary school teacher and um, I had the opportunity to be part of a group of teachers who worked at a uh, makeshift street school for Mexican children in a tent city right across one of the bridges uh, from October until January when the Mexican government dismantled that tent city. Um, the 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 people who are asking for asylum, the people who have suffered unimaginable horrors, the people who have been witness to a family member being dragged away, being witness to a, a, a family member's murdered body being tossed on the street. These are some of the things that have happened in many regions in Mexico over the past decade um, and a little more. And. Uh, talking with these parents who have done everything to keep their children safe, talking to young people who've decided, I don't wanna die and I'm not gonna work for a cartel and, and seeing their values and, and hearing the stories about their family members who are in the US who have papers or are US citizens and that they never thought of coming to the US, but now they're, they're planning to come. Hearing their stories and seeing their faces makes it very easy for me to, to continue to try to find ways to share their stories because it is absolutely humbling to, to see the strength of the people who are making these treks and who are um, trying to do everything the right way and who are still being forced to be in danger. I think that by educating yourselves, um, knowing more about the systems and alternatives to detention and alternatives to what we are currently doing, other ways we could do it, coming up with clear concrete plans, looking at some of the incredible advocacy that is growing with, with national organizations working together around the country, joining in on some of that advocacy, having conversations with your friends, having conversations with people you know who might not view things in the same way that you do, um, and continuing to hammer away, especially going into an election year. Letting your, one thing that I hear regularly from representatives wherever I've lived is that the, the people who are, are very anti-immigrant and who want to see these draconian measures put into place are very organized and are letting them know on a regular basis that this is a voting issue for them. And so finding ways, depending on what your views are and what you want to do, letting, letting people who are running for office know that these are issues that are voting issues for you, that these are issues that you care about. Um, those are, are, are things that are good as well. Looking at some of the different policies that are being suggested and bills that are being suggested and finding things you agree with and being able to talk to them about specific bills and specific legislation, um, specific policy changes that you want to see. Um, those are good ideas also. And thank you. In the context of a presidential election year, we're going to hear the phrase comprehensive immigration reform mentioned over and over again. What do you think should be a part of comprehensive immigration reform? The dreamers need to have a path to citizenship and a way to support their families. 
uh, including their parents who brought them here. That would be my personal opinion. Um, my organization I know is very supportive of dreamers and policies that allow dreamers to be in the United States and be safe. I know that for me, one of the first shocking calls I ever got from a person in the military when I was uh, beginning to work on asylum issues and, and work with immigration in this region was from a man who was about to be deployed. And he was terrified because uh, there, there was no paperwork yet in place for dreamers. It was still 2011. He was about to be deployed and his wife had lived in the United States since she was one. And he was worried that she would de be deported and his children would be put in foster care while he was overseas supporting his country. That's, that's one of the many stories um, it, of how our inability to, to proceed with reasonable, um, comprehensive immigration reform impacts so many people in our society. Beyond the dreamers, what else? Oh, I would love to encourage people to look at policy ideas from a variety of organizations. I know that the American Immigration Council um, has information about some of the different um, ideas and policies that are being pushed for uh, things that we believe are very important as an organization for comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, I know that, that many organizations around the country that work with immigration, um, NIJC, ACLU, et cetera, have plans that they're laying out as well. Um, and I would encourage people to look at those and see what they agree with. I would like to share one personal story. My son is now 22. He was in elementary school uh, in the Cleveland area. And when he was in second grade, it was 2006, and there was a lot of discussion in Congress at that time about comprehensive immigration reform. And the rhetoric that was being used on the news was such that two of his young friends in second grade, um, whose parents would never have, have agreed with this, um, just because of what they were hearing on the news and the kinds of things they were hearing these leaders say, um, they told him, my, my son was the only kid from Mexico at the elementary school at that time, even with all of the diversity at that school, um, they told him that he couldn't play with them at recess because he was Mexican and that Mexicans shouldn't be in the United States. And that was what they were gleaning just from the news. Their parents were so upset. I called their parents and said, what, what's happening here? And, and that was when they realized, wow, we really need to have conversations about some of the things our kids are hearing. And so also encouraging more civil discourse and discourse that when we're when we are talking and when our leaders are talking to encourage them to be um, thoughtful about the ways that their words uh, impact all kinds of people around them including my my son who is a dual citizen <laughs> here's another question from the a listener what is the status of the firm resettlement argument being used by the government in doing a google search i learned that an asylum applicant is ineligible if he or she was quote firmly resettled resettled in another country prior to arriving in the united states since 1996 circuit courts have issued a litany of decisions sometimes conflicting analyzing the firm <laughs> resettlement bar what is all of that yes. what does that mean i think the easiest example i can give is um in early 2017 uh, if you look back at news articles, there were a lot of people from Haiti that were arriving at the northern uh, ports of entry from Mexico into the United States. M many ended up in Tijuana because our government was sending them there uh, where they were waiting in line with numbers to ask for asylum. And that was something that I know a lot of people from that particular wave of asylum seekers 
had to deal with because if you think back, there was a horrific earthquake in Haiti that so many people from the United States were responsive to, were compassionate, were trying to find ways to to help the people of Haiti during that time. And one of the things that happened was that in the country of Brazil, Brazil was looking at an upcoming World Cup and Olympics, and they needed extra workers, they needed extra laborers, they needed extra construction, um, and they wanted cheap labor. And so the country of Brazil brought a lot of people from Haiti at a time when they'd lost everything to Brazil and they were, were working there. And then as soon as those projects were done, the country of Brazil was, was forcing them out. And so there were a lot of arguments uh, as people were asking for asylum at the border over the paperwork that they had. Well, is does this paperwork and the amount of time that you spent in Brazil count as firm resettlement? Well, if the country of Brazil is saying, no, you can't stay here, then how could that be? <laughs> and so there, and there are countless examples of that, countless, every country, every situation is a little bit different. And so um, there are a lot of different ways to deal with that. And and as this person pointed out, it, it, it there's a lot of very conflicting information, which I would like to go back to, to detention really quickly. We move P detainees all over the place, which is extremely problematic right now. But it's also problematic when you're looking at certain interpretations of the law, people are in different circuits when they're in different detention centers. And um, there are different interpretations of asylum law in different areas and there and immigration law in different areas and ice regularly takes people out of certain um certain circuits and just sends them to other circuits they also often send them to places where they're very extremely isolated they the um, majority of people who are in detention have spent time where they're over an hour away, over 60 miles away from the nearest city and the nearest nonprofit group. And many have spent uh, time in places that are 120 to 150 miles away from the nearest nonprofit that is available to help them. It's a very difficult situation. Um, how do these COVID-adjusted immigration policies affect students who are currently on visas to attend a college or university? <sighs> Yes, that I would encourage people to read up on that. It, it uh, the impact on universities, uh, even before this, with some of the different bans that have been implemented, um, have have just had a horrific impact on students, on their lives, on um, universities, and then also the people like some of the doctors who are experts that we need right now working on COVID, who have been given specific visas to. Um, stay in the United States, the same type of thing is impacting students. There are many students who won't be able to come back, even if universities open in the fall. Um, and again, why can't we? I have a friend who, who um, is a retired nurse and she lives in Cambodia most of the time. And she was talking about uh, the restrictions on people coming into the country. And there are so many countries that are so poor in comparison to our country that are managing to do reasonable screening that's keeping them from dealing with any increase in um, COVID cases. So my question would be, why can't we do the same? With respect to students, um, it's my understanding that Chinese students are being targeted in particular because of fear, not of the COVID, uh, of the coronavirus, but of uh, espionage. Oh, that is something that I do not have any information on. Okay. Sorry. All right. But I would encourage people to read to 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 read um, sources that are are nonpartisan sources or or even some conservative sources like the Cato Institute, which are usually very good at uh, laying out very um, 
very clearly factual information that you can then take the facts and make your own analysis. <laughs> okay, if you just joined us, you're with the City Club Friday Forum. Our speaker today is Crystal Massey. She's volunteer coordinator for the Immigration Justice Campaign at the American Immigration Council, which is an organization focused on increasing access to legal counsel for immigrants being held in detention centers throughout the United States. Um, if you have a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. The number for your questions, again, you can text your question to 330-541-5794. Another question uh, from our listeners. Uh, are there any actions being taken on behalf of people who, with the excuse of the impact of the COVID-19 crisis, are still waiting to take the oath of allegiance so they can officially become a U.S. Oh. citizen? This seems yes, like a form it, of voter oh. suppression to me because they probably will not be sworn in as citizens before the November election. There are incredible numbers of concern for the first. Um, I would strongly recommend the impact of COVID-19 uh, reports that just came out yesterday that you can find at the American Immigration Council website. Um, there is also a report in there that specifically focuses on um, USCIS, uh, which is the United States Immigrant um, services that has requested money in this most recent go round in Congress because it's a fee-based organization and because everything is shut down, they aren't getting any fees. And so they're looking at furloughing, in addition to all of these other issues, they're looking at the possibility of furloughing 10,000 people, um, employees from the United States in the middle of this, this crisis. Um, and so many people are saying, you know, there are so many other things we can do remotely and through mail. How is are we saying that we are incapable in this day and age with technology and the U.S. Postal Service to find a way to make sure that people who have already gone through all of these procedures and who are just waiting to sw be sworn in um, to take on the responsibilities of a U.S. citizen, how are we denying them that? Uh, and I just on that note, I would recommend that if you've never read The Oath of Allegiance, it's worth a look. Um, yes. It is a, a yes. surprisingly powerful um, text. Another question, for the past three years, I've participated in an academic immersion program through John Carroll University where students travel to Nogales to learn firsthand about the human rights crisis at our border. When we were there the first week in March, we met families who had waited for months in Mexico and were finally given a court date, but in Juarez, which is about six hours away, rather than Tucson, which is one hour away, yes. and with very little notice. How are decisions made about where court proceedings are held, and is this a recent phenomenon? That is a very good question, and we would love to have more transparency. If you try to get any numbers <laughs> or any information about what's happening in immigration detention with ICE, uh, etc., it, it is a very difficult uphill battle. We have an entire transparency team at the, the Immigration um, a, a Justice Campaign and, and American Immigration Council focusing on Freedom of Information Act to to get basic information we need to know what's happening with immigration. Um, I'm assuming since you were down there, you were probably seeing the Kino Institute and the incredible work they do. Um, also, uh, No More Deaths um, has really received some pushback in recent years, um, even with one of the main people who was leaving water in the desert uh, uh, being brought up on charges twice in the state of Arizona and twice um, the the people of Arizona were very reasonable and said, no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so um, we were happy to see uh, that that humanitarian aid is not going to be criminalized yet. And uh, with Kino Institute, so here in Juarez, El Paso, Las Cruces area, I've probably met some of the people that you met because people have had to leave 
a shelter where they feel more comfortable in Nogales and they've had to make an incredibly dangerous trek across northern Mexico to Juarez where they are still in a very dangerous situation and now the court dates that they were very likely given for the El Paso court are things that have been put on hold. And so that is one of the reasons we are pushing so hard to have something reasonable and fair that can be put into place. Um, again, I would argue that if Cambodia can do it, we ought to be able to as far as just basic screening of people who need to come into the country. And these courts are not uh, are part of the Department of Justice. They are not uh, a part of our sort of ordinary judicial system. Correct. And so um, this is another thing that immigration attorneys have been pushing back on very hard, as well as human rights activists who work in immigration situations. Um, I would encourage people to look up information on Article 1 courts and um, the Article 1 versus DOJ, the American uh, Immigration Lawyers Association, AILA, A-I-L-A, has information and a wonderful little less than four minute video that helps explain why people are pushing for this and why um, even judges think that this is something and, and uh, previous immigration judges think that this is something that's absolutely necessary uh, because immigration court is its own beast right now and it can be incredibly political in ways that are inappropriate and hurt us no matter which administration is in control. Another question here, would the immigration issue have been solved if the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 passed under President Reagan had been fully enforced? You have to explain a little bit oh. about that act. Well, actually, I would I would even jump ahead to 1996 and would we be better off if the 1996 IRA-IRA um, immigration reform had never been passed? I would encourage people to to look up the history of our immigration laws, going back to Chinese exclusion, which is what brought us the Border Patrol, <laughs> and and the, the the incredibly racist history of Border Patrol and and the militarization of the borderlands where I live, and uh, and the impact that has on our community. Earlier this year. Uh, a Border Patrol officer didn't take care with his dog. There have been accusations for years that Border Patrol was teaching dogs to attack people rather than uh, just being there with them. And uh, a Border Patrol dog got out of a truck where a window had been left too low and attacked one of my neighbors who was just out jogging. And so these, there's so many consequences when we militarize a region <laughs> that, that are not even necessarily the things that we talk about normally in that type of situation. Um, I don't think that there is ever any particular, um, again, this is just me personally, I don't think there's ever a particular comprehensive immigration reform or act we can do in Congress that's going to be perfect. But I think that we can definitely do better than what we currently have, which is the 1996 law. And I think that um, we need to do that. And then we need to adjust it and change it and um, make it better as we move ahead. But I also think that, that we need to really focus on our American values as we push for the type of um, comprehensive immigration reform we want, really thinking about, again, that love of family and the kinds of sacrifices we know we would make for ours, um, that idea of doing no harm and showing compassion to our fellow man, our community values of fairness and looking out for our neighbors and what does it mean to take the, the sole provider of a family out. Um, there's a, an, an actress from a very popular Netflix show called Orange is the New Black, who when family separation was happening, talked about her own situation at age 14, 
years ago of leaving home and ICE took her family away. And there, there were no systems in, in place to help her. And she was a US citizen and she just went to live with friends. And so there are um, so many different places where we can use more common sense. And I have personally heard immigration judges in the courtroom saying, pre-1996, I was given more leeway to make common sense decisions about what's best for a community and best for a family that's predominantly US citizens. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Don't call me the bad, literally they've said you, don't call me the bad guy, go talk to your representatives. So. A question regarding those granted, uh, the, those for those granted right to try for asylum, they need to begin the process within a year of arrival. What happens to those who have tried to apply but face the process closing down with the virus and they are now looking at more than a year before they can even be heard? Oh, they, it, it is um, a mess and there's constantly changing information. Immigration courts are still open for some types of things. We have had, so, so for example, I'm a volunteer coordinator for incredible attorneys who are stepping up and saying, I am ready to take on a pro bono parole case to try to get someone out of detention. And so as the, um, uh, one of the things that we're regularly running into is trying to explain to these pro bono attorneys, okay, yes, they said they were gonna be open on this day, but they're not. Uh, yes, they said they were gonna be open for bond, but then they decided not to be. Oh, randomly they are opening today, even though they weren't. <laughs> and so it's in, in every detention center, it's a little bit different. They have finally gotten to the point where they're putting some more clear information about which courts are closed and how long they expect them to be closed, which courts are allowing telephonic appearances and how long they expect that um, permission to last, um, et cetera. But it makes it incredibly difficult for attorneys trying to take on cases and help people right now. Um, it, it is um, confusing for attorneys and people on the front lines to even keep up with what's happening court to court right now. Uh, and so as to the, the people who are in this process themselves, it was almost impossible to follow before, uh, and now it, it's just additional layers of complication. Uh, there are ways that people can send in those applications, um, and I would recommend that people talk to local practitioners if they have questions about specific people who are in need to try to find out what's happening in their area. Um, but there, uh, uh, it is particularly difficult right now for people to even get in touch with the nonprofits and the, the attorneys who usually do this pro bono and low bono work, because again, we are in the middle of a pandemic and there are not being clear exceptions made for the people who are in these processes. And if you're not a lawyer and you would like to volunteer for the American Immigration Council, how would you do that? What would you do? If you, if you, you would contact me, <laughs> cmassey at imcouncil.org. Um, and you can also go to the Immigration Justice Campaign. It's immigrationjustice.us is our website. And you can find my contact information there. You can contact me directly. If you speak any languages other than English, we can use you as an interpreter. Um, we've run into three languages this week that we've not needed before <laughs> in, in the past three years. We never know who is fleeing or why from different areas or who we might need to, to assist. Just in case um, we can help with those three languages, yes. what are they? Uh, right now we have, um, let me pull up, Pular is the principal one. We found 
I'm just looking. Uh -huh. <laughs> I had a, a colleague helping me. Um, Lingala is one that we've had interpreters help with before, but the interpreters who have helped with Lingala, which is a language from the Democratic Republic of Congo, have not been available. Mm -hmm. So I welcome any Lingala interpreters. Um, another that we needed is, was just found, but Pular, P-U-L-A-A-R, right. um, is another language we need. Our friends at Global Cleveland, I think, are probably on it as we speak. Crystal Massey oh, is the volunteer coordinator for the Immigration <laughs> Justice you. Campaign with the American Immigration Council. She just shared her contact info. Crystal, I want to thank you so much for your time and for joining us for our City oh, Club Friday you. Forum. I'm glad we could make this happen, even though uh, it's not in person. Yes, yes thank you. Take Have care of yourself. Afternoon. Thanks so much. Yes, you too. Our forum today was presented virtually thanks to our partners at IdeaStream, and it's sponsored by Margaret W. Wong and Associates. We appreciate Margaret Wong and her longtime support of City Club programming. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, along with PNC, and additional support from the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, along with many more generous sponsors, members, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you make a contribution online or you become a member at cityclub.org. We're going to continue to present our forums virtually through this time, either on virtual platforms or here from the IdeaStream studios. And if you have ideas about topics or speakers that you would think we should feature while we're all sheltering in place and slowly reopening the economy, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. And please take care of yourself. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.